The Talk and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. Shop designer golf apparel, shoes and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands. Online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls, though some would question in control, as we prepare to dispense with the pleasantries and dive headlong into the rough and tumble world of proper golf discussion. Lots happening in the world of golf as we record today. The PGA Championship final round underway for the leaders, while Australia's Gabby Ruffles puts up a great effort but suffers a heartbreaking loss in her title defence of the US Women's Amateur. Cruel, cruel game it can be, a lip out on the 38th hole. That, however, is not really our go here at Good Good. It's not that we don't talk about the week-to-week happenings in the game. It's just that we put them a little bit further down the list than some others. That will become important to remember when we're joined shortly by a guest who, in a previous life, was very much immersed in the professional side of the game. John Dunlop was the General Manager of Commercial and Marketing at the PGA of Australia from 1995 to 2009, and he'll be along in just a moment to talk about golf then and now, and in particular, an intriguing concept he hit it at, hinted at on Twitter a week or two ago. Before we meet John, though, it's the usual hello to my partner in crime in this weekly endeavour, Adrian Logue. Logue, we've barely communicated this week for all sorts of reasons. Welcome. What's going on? Uh, I'm pretty good. Thanks, Rod. Yeah, you've been very busy. I think that's the main reason we've barely communicated. Yeah, that's part of it. I've been. It's not like I haven't been here. You've been just, waiting? You, yeah. Waiting on my texts just, and calls? Yeah. Just nothing happening? Just How many neglect, times have you invited me. me to the Union Hotel for lunch in the past week, knowing that I couldn't I, go? It's a standing offer. It is a standing offer that I can't take you up on. Where can you find us? Uh, I'm at Adrian Logue on Twitter. You're at Rod underscore Mori on Twitter. And you can find this podcast and all sorts of other podcasts to subscribe to for golf at TalkingGolf.com. Talking golf time. 1G in Talking Golf. The podcast network for serious golfers. There's a tagline. Time to move on to today's guest. I reckon I've known John Dunlop for the best part of 25 years, though it's been a good decade and a bit since we did catch up. That all changed thanks to the wonders of social media these past couple of years, and it was during a discussion there a few weeks ago that John mentioned something that I found so intriguing. It's marked a chain of events which has ended with him sitting right here alongside us in Talking Golf Central Studio One at the Sydney Podcast Studios compound. JD, as we used to call you back in the day, Good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me. No, absolute least we could do, and I'm always up for the least that we can do. We'll come to your intriguing idea in just a moment, but first a bit of background for those who may not be familiar. 14 years at the PGA. Now, how did that happen? Because if I recall, you found the game after you came to work at the PGA. Am I right about that? Yeah, very, very good. You've done your research. It's almost like you're a journalist. (laughs) Um, like I was there. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, that was exactly right. I'd uh, done a degree in sports administration down in Canberra and applied for a job, and the job was for marketing manager of an unnamed sporting organisation, and it ultimately turned out to be the PGA of Australia. Um, And I was lucky enough to get the job, and uh, despite not having any experience or knowledge of golf, um, I think I'd picked up a golf club once before I, I got the job, so you can imagine how skilled I was at the game. But um, inevitably, that turned out to be an asset because a lot of single-figure golfers, you know, are always looking to work in the game, and um, and the PGA didn't really want that. They they had a, an ample supply of people that could play the game. They wanted people that could market it, and so. Hopefully over 14 or nearly 15 years, I demonstrated some ability in the other area that I was employed for, but uh, became a lifelong fan of golf and now have a a 19-year-old son who plays off 10 and, you know, he's right into the game and, yeah, it's great. It's a a, a game for for life and one that I've been able to sort of share with my family along the way too. As a non-golfer back then whose interest was sports marketing, Mm -hmm. I think many from that kind of background come to golf and go, what are you guys doing? 
this is madness. Did you do that? And did you come to understand over time some of the reasons why golf is the way it is? Um, I, yes and no. I, you know, I think um, I became a, a bit more of a traditionalist as time went on and even took on a, a sort of a self-appointed role of being PGA historian and collecting some of the, the history of the game and filling in gaps in our history about who previous PGA Championship winners and things like that and did a lot of work over a lot of time just out of interest in that. Um, I still remember in my first year when I came in, the PGA logo back in those days was awful. It was a really old design. Um, and my, I think it was my very first board meeting. Neville Wilson was the, the chairman at the time. And, you know, they welcomed me and did all that. You know, any initial observations? And I, I piped up as a 26 Your logo is rubbish. Yeah, I think the logo needs to change. You know, collective shudder in the room. We've had that logo since the 1950s. I grew up with that logo. It's never changing. And 12 months later, we changed it. We, we sort of modernised it a little bit. And then there was another incarnation of it done many years later. So... That was one where you just go, you know, don't mess with tradition, but if you do get it right and you can demonstrate the need and the rationale for it, and, and there clearly was in that case, um, then, you know, it's all okay. So, you know, it's a bit like technology and we're, we're watching the, the USPGA at the moment. Um, players will embrace, embrace technology, new developments, new techniques, new things, um, if there's a good, good enough reason to do it. Mm, indeed, you've, you've wandered into one of Logue's <laughs> favourite areas. Mm. Do you remember the old PGA? He's a great logo breaker downer. I, I don't actually, but I do have a little series of articles in my blog where I break down logos, mostly logos which are ripe for ridicule. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on something for the uh, PGL at the moment, but right. yeah, but uh, yeah. it was uh, the, the big issue with it was the colour. It was gold and black, and gold. If you're working in those days, and print presses doesn't exist as a colour, uh-huh. so even to get business cards printed, we had to have gold leaf pressed right to make the logo. Wow! And then every time it got reproduced somewhere, it looked brown or mustardy. Uh-huh. It, it you just couldn't have any consistency with it. So that was number one. Number two, there was a crown on there, um, which I wasn't a particular fan <laughs> of. Um, Republican? Uh, not, not even so much. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so much that. But anyway, we we looked at a couple of different options, and and the two colour schemes we thought would work well were uh, that purple, that regal purple, to maintain that history and tradition, which like Wimbledon has, um, and that British racing green, which is the one we ended up choosing, and um, and then we've gone through a couple of we. I still we, say yeah, that's we. Right, yeah, mm. Well, you were there. For I still occasionally answer the phone. Welcome to the PGA. <laughs> this is John, and it just sort of comes out of nowhere. So uh, once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. Don't go down to the old office down the road here. No, not there anymore. They've no. moved down to. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember about that time in the game? It was a time of great change in golf. You mentioned technology and players. That 2000 era we always point to, the Pro V1, titanium drivers not long before. Huge upheaval in the way the game was played at the elite level. Do you remember any discussion about that and what was happening at the time? Look, there wasn't so much of a discussion. You've got to remember also in those days the PGA and the PGA Tour were very different. So mm. in terms of the PGA of Australia's injection into Separate game, entities at the time, if I recall. Correct, yeah. So. Um, you know, that, that aspect of game wasn't really our... Um, remit, so we weren't too focused on it other than when it came to the Australian PGA Championship, but I can remember going to the US PGA show in Orlando in about 2000, might have even been 2001, and the very first TaylorMade Rescue mm-hmm. wood came out, a club that still sits very happily in my bag <laughs> to this day, and my son even steals from me, um, and you know, that was another thing, you know, th- those sort of things were coming out. Before that, you just had your driver and your three wood and maybe one other wood. But um, that that concept of the rescue club, which is sort of ubiquitous in the game now at all levels, um, you know, it's 20 years old, basically. So, you know, there's a, a lot of new things happening all the time. 
I want to come to your uh, intriguing idea in a moment, but it's going to start with this. You touched on it there. The PGA Tour of Australasia and the PGA of Australia were two separate entities. Originally, they were together. Yes. And they separated for a period, and then they came back together. I can't recall. Were you there when they came back together? Indeed. Okay. And Wayne Grady was with the PGA Tour at the Correct. time, was it? Yeah, Correct. Time, yeah. yeah. Around the time of the 2002 Australian Open when he made those fantastic comments about Colin Phillips at the Australian Open that ended up being a three-day event. Anyway, let's not go into mm. all that. What do you recall about that? And what's your, what are your thoughts on whether one is better than the other? Australia is a small marketplace, particularly for a tour. I don't think now you could possibly have a separate tour branch. There's not enough tournament golf to, to warrant it. But what was your memories of the time? And what sort of issues? Because the PGA is in an awkward spot in Australia, servicing those two markets, which from the outside look the same, mm. but in reality are completely different in what they need. Yeah. And then you've even got the other extension of that is with the amalgamation or proposed amalgamation with Golf Australia yeah. and can an amateur supposedly and professional body uh, cohabitate. Um, so, and again, having done a lot of history of PGA of Australia over many years as well, sort of um, my my view of it now would be the, the reasons that the PGA Tour and the Tour players broke away from the PGA of Australia in the first place were well-founded. They weren't being represented, um, and it really did require, um, as the game took off at that commercial level, it did require their own um, entity to look after it. It would have been better if it could have been done under the banner of the PGA, but, you know, politics and professional sport and everything being what it is, that was never likely to happen. Um, but then as it played out and, and towards the end of my time when we re-amalgamated, um, I, it was definitely the right decision. You know, the the game here just isn't big enough. It wasn't big enough then, back in 07, 08. Um, and everyone on both sides was very committed to getting that happen and to to unify the game and hopefully make the organisation stronger. The other thing that happened when PGA and Tour split was PGA of Australia still owned the name, the acronym. So PGA Tour couldn't licence or couldn't do some of the commercial things that might otherwise have made them a more viable entity, um, or not without factoring without PGA of Australia support. in, and, you know, they didn't really want to have to go down that path. So um, it, it came together for the right reasons, um, and I think it's been a much smarter move. And if they actually can work out how Golf Australia and PGA should get together, then again, for the size of country we are and everything that's happening here, it would be a much better outcome, I think. Yeah, particularly with professional events. Like You, you try and imagine we're watching the PGA Championship as we record this, but the PGA of America merging with the PGA Tour would just be ridiculous. Like, it just couldn't possibly happen. Don't um, bet on it. Well, the PGA is the weaker one in that case, I guess. So Don't bet on it. While, while you've got an incredibly strong tour, there's, you know, there's not a lot. He, here's an oh, the tour wants a major, though. Here's an they, intriguing so. question which Jeff Shackelford has asked more than once. Why is Seth Waugh the head of the PGA of America? He doesn't need to be. Here's a guy who spent his life doing incredible deals running the PGA on a day-to-day basis, whilst an interesting job if you're into golf, hardly seems like it would be enough to motivate a guy like Seth Waugh. And Shackelford's convinced that deep down at the back of it all... He's been brought in. The to- back, the, the, the ultimate goal is for the two entities to merge. And got- that, would, that would take somebody of Seth Waugh's capability to pull off. So that's a little side thing. Have we'll you just got put conspiracy aside. music uh, on your <laughs> soundboard there? Blame <laughs> Shackleford. But it, it is intriguing. As soon as he said that, it's like, you know, you're right. Seth Ward doesn't. He's a member at every fantastic golf club in America. He owns half of America. There's no reason for him to want to run the PGA on a day-to-day basis. And building a golf course in Texas and moving the headquarters, that's not enough. So I wouldn't be surprised if that merger would give the PGA Tour the Ryder Cup. It would give them the fourth and fifth major. Then they just have to try and climb that ladder to get from fourth and fifth up to third. So anyway, that's all. Uh, <laughs> that's all by the Bible. Nice we'll speculation. Yeah, good. I like we'll that. We'll talk about some of that a little bit later. 
Uh, on to your intriguing idea. I want to come back to the USPGA a little bit later. On to your intriguing idea, and I can't for the life of me now remember what it was. We were talking about <laughs> we were talking about public golf <clears throat> yes. and the importance of public golf and where it fits in the scheme of things. And mm. we know things are changing, and there's lots of public golf courses under threat and whatnot. What was it that you told me that made me send you a DM that said? JD, you've got to come on the show. <laughs> um, so it was an idea that we'd had sort of in the late noughties, I suppose, and it was around the time that we were re-amalgamating with uh, PGA Tour and boards changed and and I think that's one of the reasons actually fell off the radar. Um, but effectively we were in that situation where PGA members were losing their job as club pros, clubs were taking it over the pro shop themselves. Um, game numbers were dropping off. Local councils, government councils, were taking over and selling off golf courses for land, as continues to happen, unfortunately. And so we were, tr- you know, the the thinking in the day and the thinking to this day is, you've just got to get people playing the game. So um, a big focus is put a big, put, a big focus is put on um, people. Um, new people coming into the game. So the old sales funnel. So put enough people in the top trying the game and filter down, you get some lifelong golfers out of them and it builds the numbers. Um, and that works to a degree. Um, the other s- school of thought is, you know, get existing golfers to play more, um, and that's probably an, a, a lower bar to reach, but um, there's not a great deal of focus put on that beyond sort of golf club level. So we, we came up with a bit of a plan, and um, I don't have access to any of those records anymore because they stayed at the organisation when I left, naturally, but um, it was basically to take a, a block of land, call it one half, two acres, that sort of size that councils everywhere across the country would have and develop a template design of six holes it might be six holes it might be four holes or five holes it doesn't matter um i even had um in those days a preliminary discussion with peter thompson about it because we thought if we went to tomo and said can you do a template layout something that on a relatively level block of land something that's not going to require a lot of land you know moving soil and things like that but that we could do we could install a golf course there pga would come in and partner with the council to do it so the council would still own it we'd put a pga member in there um, they would run the business um, and have some limited facilities there for mothers groups school groups all that sort of thing so that through the day you can just have this continual stream of people coming in a little bit like the par three concept you've got a terry hills but with you know four or five actual proper holes um on the basis that if you get people in if you do it in a non-intimidating environment and you know there's a lot of evidence to say that golf clubs can be intimidating environments for people um you know especially if they've never played before or they're not a member there and things like that um so that was that was the broad concept of it it didn't get too far down the line um and you know we didn't work out exactly what size land was needed in that but I think the the idea still holds up. I mean, if you could come up with something like that, there's there's blocks of land like that everywhere in every council that wouldn't be used for other things. It wouldn't be appropriate for residential or commercial development. They wouldn't be. And then you would at least also then retain some green space in all those communities, which has been eroded at a, at a rate of not. So um, it was just another idea to address that diminishing facility base but also from a PGA Australia perspective provide some employment opportunities for younger pros coming into the game uh, being able to set up their own business being able to run it and being able to make a decent living out of it um, yeah and not necessarily have to you know answer to a golf club in that environment so um, that, that was the the basic crux of it. What was the response from PGA people amongst its own membership the PGA has some issues There's <laughs> not all of their members a particularly progressive thinking. Many of them really are. But having said that, the world has changed under their feet unbelievably in a generation for the PGA professional. What was once 
a secure and wonderful position to hold on a golf course has become something that's very tenuous and has almost no security and it's become a very different beast. And that's changed the way the public interacts with the game because it doesn't matter what you want to say about The PGA professional is the public face of golf for pretty much every golfer. Yep. Um, and I just wonder whether what your thoughts are on, about that and how it's changed and how the PGA can try to manage that. I know they're trying. Yeah. Are they getting it right? Um, uh, I think it's hard to say right and wrong. I, it, the, the idea that we put forward really didn't get past board level. So it didn't go out to the membership, um, unfortunately. And, and as I said earlier, it sort of got tied up in that timeline of um, reamalgamating with the tour. So other priorities took over. Then it fell by the wayside. I left. I was probably, you know, one of the people in the organisation with Max Garski that was driving it. You know, we both left sort of within 12 or 18 months of each other. So, um, it's probably sitting there in a file somewhere that, and and no one currently knows that it, that it, there's some paperwork on it. But um, in terms of the the role of the club pro in Australia, yeah, through that early part of the 2000s, it was becoming very evident that, that was the way it was going, and that was one of the reasons that these sort of ideas were being discussed amongst others. Um, the fixation with golf pros had, had always been, you know, we, we want the, the technical term, the quiet enjoyment of our business. We want to run our own business at the golf club and do that. And then progressively clubs wanted to take it over to have greater control over the standard and service and presentation of the shop. Um, one of the reasons I was employed was to do the PGA National Golf Club um, scheme which was, you know, uh, effectively a retail franchising model. Um, and it got off the ground to a degree but never really um, – got hold to the to the level that it needed to to be sustainable um so once we'd sort of walked away from that um and left it to the buying groups of pga members we were effectively out of that area but it always sort of struck me as a bit odd and i can remember having some robust discussions with some very you know senior established club pros about what why why do you want to run your own business, what, what what's so bad about being employed? Um, and it was a bit of a devil's advocate sort of discussion because you know there's there's upsides and downsides. If you're employed, you get annual leave, you get all these things that you don't get when you own your own business. You know, a lot of those club pros work ridiculous hours. Um, and, and in many cases, you know, weren't really compensated for it, but they had their own autonomy. So there was always that push for the autonomy rather than the employed model. Um, but just gradually over time, the reality of that has set in and you've got some guys who are employed in their jobs and very happy and comfortable and um, lead a good life and, and enjoy what they do. So I think it's horses for courses. I think there's a, a, a role for both of them. Um, I think the big thing that golf clubs in Australia really miss by having an engaged and motivated pro um, to lead that public face of golf within the club is bringing new people in and being the face of that and come on I'll come and have a game with you I'll come and play a few holes with you you know and and bridging that gap between um, a a club and an administration and a new person walking in the gate Um, we don't have there's no one else that does that if the pro doesn't do it no one does it that's exactly yeah if they're they're the face of golf but they're particularly the face of golf for new golfers yeah and juniors as well. Oh, I'd say they're, they're the rules administrator. Any rules query yep. always goes to the Tends pro, to shop. To the pro yeah, shop. You, you ring the pro shop. Oh, mate, yep. Andy, I'm near the, is it in or out if it's on the line at the fence? You know, yeah, that, play that two balls. Thing. That's always the answer. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, play two <laughs> balls. In, proceed in equity. Yeah, and take the best score. I, that's right. Um, I forgot. That would have been the biggest discussion point for PGA professionals at that time was that changing nature of retail. We were moving from bricks and mortar to online. And that was a very turbulent time. What do you recall about that? Um, uh, everyone was fairly dismissive of it to start with, and probably myself included. You know, um, we, we, we all made that mistake, didn't we? Yeah. The late yeah. 90s, this internet thing. Yeah. Oh, it's oh yeah, it'll go. It'll no. pass. Um, <laughs> I, I think it was, you know, with golf balls and, and consumable things like that, you kind of go, yep, I can buy that online, I'm okay. But there was always this impression that to buy golf clubs, and I think it's still right to a degree, you want to feel it. 
You, you want to hold it in your hands and swing it. And, you know, you could pick up two clubs of the exact same spec and hit them and one's going to feel better than another. Yeah. Now, whether there's actually any difference to it or whether it's all in your mind or whatever, it doesn't, but you, you do feel that difference. And, and so I kind of always believed that from the, the big purchase item, the, the full set of golf clubs or a driver or something like that, it was less likely to be purchased online. Well, you know, clearly that's not the case. There's plenty of that happening now. Um, but I think people do their trying on the, the test days and on the driving ranges and they're with friends online. and then just buy online. They're just shopping for price. So it's a bit like motor cars and things like that. You can do all that online now as well, whereas, you know, it was just unfathomable to think that a few years ago that you'd even contemplate buying a car without test driving it and doing this and doing that. So um, the market's moved on a lot um, and I think you know it's a bit like during COVID now you know I, I hate video conference calls I really do um, I've resisted them for a long time I have no choice like most people now so we do them and now we're all used to them and it's okay there was tension within the PGA itself wasn't there amongst members some members who had off course shops were seen as somewhat pariahs in the early days by the PGA professionals when green grass was the only way to buy golf equipment. Think about that, young people. There was a time when if you wanted anything to do with golf, shoes, balls, clubs, you had to go to a pro shop at a golf course. There was no other way to buy golf equipment. No eBay? No eBay. No no off-site chains. What do you recall about that? Because there was some genuine tension, wasn't there, and some – there were some unfortunate incidents along the way. Oh, well. absolutely. And look, some of that even predated me. But, um, uh, you know, uh, some of the most successful off-course retailers all had a background as PGA members or, or, you know, from that side of the game because that's how they'd gotten into it. Then they'd, mm-hmm. they'd seen the opportunity, you know, from a, a purely business perspective. You take your hat off to them, go, they saw a market, they saw an opportunity, and they, they went out and grabbed it. Um, and for the size of country we are, we are that, you know, we've got, a relatively limited number of um, off-course retail chains um, is is probably testament to the fact that our, our Greengrass Club pros were still so, so strong um, and that that role is still there and the fact that it's even still going. And In fact, if I, it wasn't that long ago that Titleist would only sell through Greengrass. I'm talking maybe 10 or 15 uh, years. Certainly in my time at PGA, that was would their rule. Would not sell in an off-course yep. retail shop Titleist. If you yep. wanted to buy Titleist gear, anything, mm. you had to go to a golf course yeah. to support a Greengrass. And towards the end of my time, that was when- it. Uh, sports shops and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, they all had their um, stockist program. So, you know, to be a stockist of a product, you had to sell a certain amount and things like that. And that that was all sort of coming in sort of 07, mm. 08, 09, if I'm not mis- mistaken. And then, yeah, you're exactly right. There were some brands that would only sell to Greengrass. And that was their point of difference and, mm. and probably worked for a while. And then, again, it doesn't take much of a market shift that uh, from a volume of sale point of view that you then have to make better decisions for how you're going to capture those sales. Back to your intriguing idea. Do you still think it's got merit? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. What do you reckon, uh, Logue? Well, just to, to riff on that a little bit, depending on the, the size of the land, I was always taken by there was a block of land on Pitt Street about 25 years ago, I reckon, which where they just dug a big hole and it was a building they'd torn down and, and it was it was just a big hole for a while. They had nothing better to do with it and they put in a driving range. Oh, that's and right. I worked right next door to it. And so I was in there every lunchtime just hitting a few balls. Is that the Japanese model? You find a lot of those ranges yes, between right. buildings in yeah. places like that. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I, well, as you know, I lived in Japan. Yeah, the only right. time I ever played golf was in a driving range there. But uh, I've, I've been undressed by kings and seen some things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, <laughs> um, but the, uh, that driving range always struck me as a great idea. It was, uh, <laughs> it was That's some of your very best work. That's a creeper. Very, mm. very best work right there. Um, it was 
uh, only there temporarily. I think yeah, I, I, they I had nothing better yeah. to do with the land for a yeah. little while. And they thought, oh, well, we might as well make a little bit of money out of a driving range. And I really like that opportunistic idea. And mm. I was going to say, if you if you were to actually put golf holes into the ground, I wouldn't get too attached to them. Like, <laughs> make them something simple. Like, something don't, don't go with USGA greens or no. anything like that. No, no, Just no. get something simple in the ground that's like, it might work, it might become a permanent thing or it might not. Whoever's got title over the land might decide to actually put some buildings there so it's a it's a transient thing that that's that would be my riff on the idea yeah okay i understand what you're saying i I mean we we certainly saw it as more of a a permanent sort of community facility um and again if you're talking about filling the sales funnel getting more new people in from the top then that's where you know if you've got a nice little clubhouse with a pro shop and maybe a meeting room that some mothers groups and things and local community groups can come um scout groups whatever it happens to be do their little meeting and then have a few holes of golf um there's there was even i sort of was stretching my memory last night trying to remember that you could maybe have like a driving range bay across the front of it so that when the holes aren't being used, you could almost have a hitting mat to hit out into that area, depending how big it was and how it was fenced in and things like that. So, you know, there's certainly some ideas. We certainly at that time, again, it hadn't been developed to the nth degree, saw it as a, as a permanent facility and as a solution to um, uh, an employment issue for PGA members, but also just getting more people into the game. But but again, that whole fixation was on more people into the game, and it still is. I still hear and see a lot of golf commentary about we need to get more people playing the game. Um, I don't know what the stats are in Australia now, but there was always this thing for me of going, well, if there's X number of rounds played per year at the moment, and there's X number of golfers, if every one of those golfers has one more round of golf or two more rounds of golf, then suddenly you, you've gone from a very flat market, but you, you start using consumable, like you start stimulating that golf market um, at all levels. So that retail gets stimulated, the clubs get stimulated, the club bars get stimulated because there's more people coming through. The fact that it's the same people playing more often shouldn't matter too much. It's, it's get those rounds up um, and that helps the golf economy. And then do all your other stuff to get more people in and, and feed the funnel. Because that's kind of about the future, isn't it? Yeah. If the if the if the focus is now, mm. existing golfers playing more undoubtedly is the goal. There was if some the focus is the future. You kind of need to build the next generation. Cor- correct. You've got to keep bringing the new ones through. But there there was a survey done at the time, and I I can't remember if it was here. I think it might have even been the PGA of America did it. That said, from a a, a non golfer to try the game to becoming what we term a golfer was eight to twelve games. Okay. So. That, that's a really high bar mm, to set for something. Much. Sandy Jemison does it in like eight to 12 minutes. <laughs> he does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, I like, I like what Sandy's doing with his one club thing, and it. but it goes back to that same principle. Put a club in someone's hand. That's right. Teach them how to enjoy hitting a golf ball. They'll get some joy out of it. <clears> they'll do it. Um, you know, and, and I've seen that even with my own son. I mean, obviously, he sort of grew up in a little bit of a golf household and was exposed to some things that, you know, he might not otherwise have been. But, um, you know, he's gone on and, and played golf and he played it through school and was golf captain and now he's joined Avondale uh, and now he's playing off 10, you know, um, and he's he sort of dropped about 10 shots in the last 12 months. So, you know, he's... he's so you've stopped playing with him, obviously. You that's with very him true. Yeah. I've had one game with him in the last two years. Because uh, yeah, there's, there's no joy in that for me anymore. Um, but also, I you know made sure he got good lessons. So you know, Christian Small, who used to be at the Lakes, is now at uh, Bonnie Doon, is probably one of the best golf coaches in the country, and he's been giving Nick lessons every so often for the last 10, 12 years. Um, delightful guy, just passionate about coaching. So you know, that's that's also a joy in getting you know people into the game that way yeah. um and and i think as golfers we all have a responsibility to do that you know it might not necessarily be your, your son or your daughter or whatever but but getting your kids and family and friends and things to it to the game we often say on this 
podcast, John, in very roundabout ways, that it's the business of golf that gets in the way of golf. Golf itself, the game, has not changed for eternity and is is as intriguing and compelling now as it was 500 years ago when people first started to play it. And it strikes me that whilst I love the idea you've had, it touches on that problem. So the PGA has an issue where they can't just do something for the good of the game without having attached to it some benefit to their membership. It's, like and I, it's a franchise. Yeah, I don't mean that to be derogatory, but it's a reality, isn't it, that everybody who has any reason to want to make the game better and bigger has some kind of agenda attached to it. It's true of manufacturers, it's true of us in the media, it's true of PGA professionals. Do you see that or did you find frustration at times that, with that, that reality? That was the framework that I was working within. So to be honest, <laughs> sounds really naive, but I don't think we really concerned ourselves too much with that. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight and, and looking back on that now and looking at the situation and what you're saying, it's a, it's a fair enough point. Um, my counter to it would be that the PGA member is still the person best suited to that position. Now, would there be an amateur golfer who understands the game and the business and <coughs> be as capable of running it? Absolutely. Um, you know, are PGA members by and large, um, the best retailers in the world. No, they're not, because there's never been a very big focus on it's teaching. not why them. they get into golf. It's not it? why they get into golf, right. <laughs> right. So so all of that, and, and that argument played through with PGA National Golf Centres as well. You know, do you know, we're, we're asking golf pros to be, to be retailers and franchises, and, and it's, it's a very really different mindset. really invest in time and energy yeah. and effort. Yeah. And, yeah. and speaking of investing, you know, part of that, again, preliminary model was that that pro might, invest in developing that facility so he'd have skin in the game so there was there was a reason for them to be there and stay there and everything like that um you know a lot of water would have passed under the bridge before that became a reality and that exact business model sort of played out um but but the issue had always been you know what constitutes a golfer what constitutes a golf facility does it have to be an iron or 18 hole golf course um with a membership and all this sort of thing the answer is no, it doesn't have to be. So if if golf can get its head around, look, there's a block of land there and it's an acre and we can fit three decent holes and a little demountable pro shop and whatever else, who cares? Mm. People are playing golf. And if they mm. play it there and enjoy that experience, they're more likely then to go to a golf club or a driving range or do that sort of thing. So it's about getting them in, getting over that eight to 12 games hurdle, get get people enthused about the game uh, and it starts to address that and and that doesn't happen overnight it doesn't happen with one in one council you know um, area it happens on scale um, and and that would be nice to see um, golf organizations you know undertake that sort of uh, it's a little bit speculative I suppose but you know it'd be a calculated risk in those sort of things common sense tells you there is no other way to get people to play golf than to get them to actually play golf yeah and that's always been the case. And I don't reckon the percentages would have changed. I've said this before. If you took 100 people in 1788 and handed them golf clubs, 50 would go, that's moderately interesting. 20 would go, that's an awful game. I never want to have anything to do with it. And 30 would become committed golfers for the rest of their life. Yeah. And those percentages have not changed. It doesn't matter what happens with yeah. technology or any of the rest of it. So the real goal of golf needs to be just get them playing. put golf clubs in people's hands. Yeah. And that's what Sandy Jamison is proving. He puts a golf yeah. club in their hand and yeah. just mm-hmm. go play golf. Yeah. yeah. Forget all the rest of it that yeah. we invest in as yeah. golfers. Just yeah. go yeah. play just, golf. Just let those percentages yeah. do the work. Yeah. And and the other thing, you, you think about the, the barriers that golfers always put up, dress codes, yeah. you know, behaviour, that sort of thing. So not that we need to dilute those, no. but a facility like this lets you dilute them. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're wearing shorts. 
I don't care if you're wearing thongs. I don't care. It, it kind of doesn't matter in that regard. The point is you put in a golf club in their hand and they're having fun. They're having an enjoyable experience. So their takeaway from what golf is is I had some fun um, and I did it in a non-threatening environment, you know, and, and that was always a big issue, particularly with getting women into the game is they were very intimidated. I had this with my own wife. I took her along. She's like, where do I go? What do I do? You know, like didn't want to do the right, wrong thing, knew there were rules, but didn't know what they were and didn't know how to interact with them so in the end often it all becomes too hard so you do it once and then you step away yeah. and then you don't do it rabbit hole is that a problem with golf the game i think that's actually a problem with human groups politics it, what golf allows is for people to jump on the exclusion bandwagon i can be a member here and exclude all of you from being a member here as well and that's not been good for the game i don't think that's a mm, golf thing no. i think it's just there's there's not that many environments that allow that, and golf is a culture that allows that in so many ways. Yeah, and, and we're a lot better here than, than elsewhere. You know, I, uh, look, I, I was fortunate enough to go to the US Masters and, and a US PGA and several British Opens, and I often get asked by friends, you know, oh, the Masters must have been great. And I go, yeah, look, it was great. It was a real bucket list thing to go to. But if I never set foot in those gates again, and I probably never will, I, I'm okay with that because I didn't like that gated exclusionary um, notion of golf whereas you go to the Open Championship in the UK and you can literally walk up to the gate and buy a ticket and go in and watch it Scotland and Ireland especially are fantastic England's and, a little bit more like the American yeah, Australia so there's a yeah more there's a couple of those in Scotland clubs. and Ireland they yeah. welcome you've come from all the other way around the other side of the world to play here this is yeah. amazing yeah. go yeah. in but and not enjoy even play it. I mean, I mean, to watch the tournament just to watch yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I always count the Open yeah. Championship as kind of my favourite for that reason, that it, it, it's encouraging inclusion. It's encouraging you to come and watch. It's encouraging you to be involved in it. Yeah, and again, I'm generalising. Sure. I know that it doesn't always trickle down to some of those more elite exclusive <laughs> clubs, but um, but that was something, you know, that that's hard to to fathom about the the US Masters. You've got to know someone and you've got to be connected and you've got to have this and that. and You've got to plant it years in advance. But it's all yeah. okay because <laughs> the sandwiches are cheap. <laughs> You're correct, so, yeah. You know, there we yeah. Go. And the prices yeah. haven't gone up in 50 years. For the, for the, very for the I won't have a bad there. thing said about those sandwiches. Logue's <laughs> been too, uh, sensational. As well. For the pedants out there, you've said US Masters, US PGA, no good. You actually said British Open as well, but you've saved yourself with a couple of Open Championships. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. That's so, so, <laughs> so, uh, to pull people. Well, Although, Clayton's on the British Open bandwagon, so, you know, if it's good enough for Clayton, Tomo, generally speaking, uh, Tomo called it, Tomo British, called it the British Open. He had five of them. Yeah. yeah. If anyone was allowed to, yeah. He can. I only, I only did it for, uh, uh, you know, to just distinguish <laughs> it from the other two tra- championships that I was referencing. They call it the Empire Open. We should revitalise that term, the Empire. Our mate Robbie Williamson's got a fantastic idea for the Mackenzie Cup to be played across Alistair's courses around the world. Cypress Point, Augusta, Royal Melbourne. Um, you go to Argentina and play the Jockey Club. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic nice. idea, isn't it? Oh. Mm. I hope. Hope, hope you haven't sold these thumbs. <laughs> <hope you, hope laughs> someone got that registered. <laughs> hope you've painted that. I better, better check with you before That's I edit it. Uh, yeah, it's a terrific idea, yeah. isn't it? Terrific idea. How do you view the game now from outside, John? Do you still take an interest? We're obviously watching the PGA and you know what's yeah. going on because you walked in here saying, how's Justin going? So <laughs> what's your sort of view of golf as now? You know, not being in the industry, someone outside. Yeah, look, I'm I'm still engaged in it. I, I certainly don't follow it as closely as I did. Um, once I left PGR, I went and worked with a supercar team and a driver, and then could went and worked. Fur- at- could could you, you have gone further afield? Are you familiar with the term nominative determinism? <laughs> <laughs> you are, aren't you? <laughs> I can remember my very first um, motor race. It was down in Adelaide at the what was then the Clipsal 500, and I was standing in a marquee, and the noise was deafening. Right, and I'm thinking. 
three months ago, yeah, I was standing in a marquee uh, <laughs> at Hyatt Coolum, and you yeah, could have heard a pin drop. You know? Champers and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> it was, it was just a very different sort yeah. of sound level. Um, but half yeah. the golfers would have been envious of you being at the motor racing. Golfers oh, love their cars because yeah, they're the only yeah. people who can afford it. Yeah, professional exactly. golfers. Yeah, True. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I sort of got involved in some other sports and then went and worked at Supercars itself. And so uh, worked in a few other professional sports, so I'm you know pretty engaged in those as well and following them. But I still love my golf. And, um, I, again, you know, I've mentioned him a few times, my son. You know, that, that, that's been something as a, as a parent, sort of being able to work with a child on the way through and, and learn and enjoy something together. It was always wherever we'd go for a holiday. Um, you know, last year we went down to Jerringong. We went and played Jerringong Golf Course and things yeah. like that. You know, you so just – There's a walk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You take a cart? Uh, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's Even well, that's what? dangerous. You come over the hill on that first hole there yeah. and you're looking straight down a cliff face and you're thinking, this cart's not going to yeah. stop. For my, my once-a-year game with him and everything, um, yeah, so – I, I follow the game, you know. Certainly follow the top players. Certainly the Aussies. Um, still, again, the benefits of social media. There's a, there's a few people from the old days that I'm I'm well connected with on social media and stay in touch with, and um, you know uh, the Aherns and you know the Applebees and things like that. And um, you know, really lovely people. And it's nice to see. You know, we we all had kids the same sort of time, and you see them growing up. And we that was one of the you know the beautiful things about Hyatt Coolum and the PGA Championship up there was just that family atmosphere that the players were there with their wives, with their families, were all in that village at night. Everyone got to know each other and everyone became friends. And, um, uh, you know, I certainly miss that aspect of it. You know, I'd love to work in golf again one day, but, you know, like I'm not – I don't harbour any desire. If it never happened, it's not a problem. But I really loved my time in the game oh, and cool. the industry. Th- those really were the days. <laughs> you can yeah. hark on about the others. Pre-Palmer days. Pre-Palmer, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. There, which, which, which prods me to ask this question, JD, from outside now. Is golf as unique as I think it is as a sport? You've been involved in some other professional sports where essentially the viewing fan – is a participant, and I don't think that's true of most other sports. I would suggest to you that at least eighty percent of people who watch golf most weeks, less so with the majors, yep. you have a, some yep. others come be a general sports fan. Yes, yeah. But on a week to week basis, and I always pick on this tournament. I shouldn't. It's a great tournament, the John Deere Classic. Yep. If you're watching the John Deere Classic, you are a golfer, and if you're not, mm-hmm. there's something very strange has happened to you. Then <laughs> you're watching golf without being a player. Is that unique? Do people who watch car racing race cars as well? And if it is, does golf need to approach professional golf in particular and that relationship with the fan differently? Because it looks like the PGA Tour in particular is chasing a model very much like other sports, NFL and NASCAR and these other entertainment-only sports, whereas I think golf's a great is a, is a massive participation fan base, and I think that makes it different. I think you're right. I think it is different. I think um, the people watching it tend to be participants at some level because there's a, a level of knowledge about the game and understanding how hard that shot was that they've just seen a player make. Um, you know, you need to sort of understand yourself from personal experience how how hard that is. So I think that's definitely true. Um, certainly with motorsport, yeah, there's a there'd be a lot of people that would race historics and other categories and will have done so over the years. Or there's just people. You know, you drive a car, you can understand how difficult it is to do what some of these people do with cars and things and the speeds that they're travelling at is kind of mind-boggling. Um, I think one of the things that's really helped Formula One's audience grow outside of its existing fan base in the last few years has been that Netflix documentary, uh, Drive to Survive. Um, uh, again, I was watching it at home one day in the first series. My wife came home and said, oh, what's this, you know, car racing again? 
and then got absorbed in it because it was so well shot, the narrative was so good. It was about you people, didn't, wasn't it? It's not about correct. cars, it's about people. Correct. Cricket, you, cricket's done it now as well. Yeah, the, cricket's done it. Very good one with cricket. Test. So I'm uh, not saying that golf has to do that as well, um, but I but I think those, those sort of inside-the-ropes experiences and, and unveiling sort of show people what else is going on behind that, and I think that can help bring in a new audience. To your point, I think, yeah, golfers tend to watch golf, and it's probably a unique selling proposition. How do you translate that into something? Something more valuable for the game. I, I, I don't know. Um, but it looks so straightforward. The non-golfer would watch golf on TV and go, how hard can it be? All you see is blokes hitting it close to the hole and rolling the ball in. Yeah. How hard could it be? Yeah. And that's true. You're not invested ways. in the outcomes or anything. You don't know what You don't know what's at stake. That's right. You don't know the personalities. But that's but why someone like Tiger is so important to have him back there because yeah. he transcends right. the, the hardcore fan. People will try because they've seen him do it. Then they'll discover all those other things Correct. about it that make yeah. it so But his name draws them to do it. If he's not there, you know, Xander Shawfly, with all respect, isn't, <laughs> isn't going to draw the non-golfer to watch many, the game. Too many consonants. <laughs> Unless they've seen him on, like golf's equivalent is Big Break. But again, you're not a you're a golf fan if you're watching Big Break. But it's also the only time in their careers where they can actually get access to them because once they get once so they get once their big raw, break, you don't get there. They're in their bubble and you can't get access to, to them. Just thinking about what you were saying there, John. Now would be the time to do the was it Drive to Survive style mm. documentary on the PGA Tour because you've actually got some niggle at the top. Kepka has clearly rustled the feathers of a lot of top players. Correct. He's clearly got it in for Deschambeau. Based on Rory's comments this morning, there's some playful potential back and forth to be had there. That was some pretty pointed comments he made about what Brooks had said the day before. Now would be a terrific time to do a fly-on-the-wall documentary about the PGA Tour. It might actually be interesting because the PGA Tour would have us believe they're all great and they're all friends and everything's wonderful. The best thing we've ever had is probably like John Feinstein's Good Walk Spoiled or something like that. There's been a couple of books. But again, do you read that book as a a reader or someone who's an avid reader? No, you read it as a golfer and you only know its existence because you're a golfer. Um, So to, you know, to open the sport, to draw, you know, it begs the question to, to your point, Rod, do you have to be a golfer to be able to watch and enjoy golf? Can you watch and enjoy golf on a regular basis if you're not a golfer? The Only answer should be yes, but be. but they don't. So My mum is in that position, but she likes Tiger and she likes Adam, who she sometimes calls Aaron, uh, <laughs> because she gets Baddeley and Scott mixed yeah. up from when they were younger. Uh, okay, Adam yeah. Baddeley and Aaron Scott and yeah, all that sort okay. of stuff. Um, but she watch if Tiger's playing, she'll watch. Yeah. She'll know the real interest in the game. Yeah. Aside from that, let's go back to your intriguing idea one last time. Whose job is it? to pursue those kinds of concepts? Is it the PGA or is it Golf Australia? Either or. If, if they're, they're going to be serious about amalgamating, then the answer's easy. It's it's both of them. Um, if they're not, um, you know, they, they both have a role to play in it. And that, that's the one thing about the two organisations coming together. And those discussions started before my time, with, during my time, and now after my time in golf, it's still it's, happening. It's the distance debate of administration, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's never going to end. It is. It's the ball. Yeah, that's um, right. <sighs> If, if they, they remain separate, I would like to see the PGA take some senior leadership role in doing that because they probably have a little more of a vested interest with their membership There's base. There's a commercial yeah. imperative. Correct. Yeah. And, and make no bones about it. They're a membership organisation. Their job, their charter is to provide benefits to their members, be they plain, be they vocational. So that being the case, then there's a very logical reason for them to pursue it. Um, and and that should happen. But equally, if Golf Australia said, hey, listen, we've got the resources, we've got the time, we're going to put someone on this, let's go. Great. You know, I, I, I think 
this is where golf needs to get to, and particularly in this country, is less concerned about who's doing it mm-hmm. and more concerned that they're uh, doing the right way and getting the right result. And if that happens, and it actually doesn't matter who does it, um, you, you're trying to reach to an outcome. Down, yeah. Now, that's that's the rose-coloured glasses sure. view of the world and politics and sport. But Should they amalgamate? Uh, and what was the relationship between the two like when you were there, can you recall? We know there's been times when it's been frosty and there's been times when it's been better. They, they naturally, like cats and dogs, they they naturally clash. They've got. Mm. It's one of those things. Australian golf's got two of everything. Sort it, of. Like you've got two people in commercial but positions. But does that, by definition, mean that it would be better if it had one of everything? I'm not necessarily Perhaps, convinced about that. Well, if you're a so. major sponsor looking to get into golf, you've, you, you just need to talk to one person instead of two. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think in every the, initiative, I think that same theory applies. Yeah, I think in the commercial market in Australia and in the general community, no one knows the difference. It's only the people that are really in it and understand the, the nuances that really understand that they are distinct and that you know one's more amateur-oriented. And uh, you know, I don't say that in any way derogatorily. That's a, that's a really big part of the game development. Hey, there's more of us than there are the PGA yeah, members. Yeah, correct. <laughs> um, and then there's one that's more vocational, yeah. people that are making their living out of playing the game. So they they have very different needs and things. But I, if you look at the size of this country and all of that, and that's always the default sort of argument, realistically, we, we shouldn't have multiple golf organisations. You've got one being the national sporting organisation as well. So they attract government funding and then now you've got Olympics, but that the people playing the Olympics aren't they're the pros, you know. Like there, there's a lot of confusion over all of that. I think if they could rationalise that and and get it together, that would be the best outcome for golf and for golfers in this country, professional and amateur. I think if it's done the right way, one golf has not been a screaming success, has it? Which doesn't necessarily fill one with confidence about the PGA and Golf Australia coming together under one. Which is not to say it shouldn't happen or can't happen. It's yeah. just to say that at this stage, there's an awful lot of tears. Yeah with something to protect. Yeah. A lot of people have to talk themselves out of a job. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And that that was always a a big issue in the old days with with some of those discussions is that people coming in to be chairman of the Golf Australia or chairman, oh, I don't want to give it up this year because it's my turn to go to the Masters or it's my turn to go to the, you know, they didn't want to miss out on their turn. They've waited respectfully in line and everyone else has had it. So that became actually a big factor. Um, Once we take that, you know, personal issue out of it. And, and and that's where they need to come up with a transitional idea and go, okay, hang on, uh, no one's changing roles in the committee. There's no new person coming in. Everything's on hold. Nothing happens. No one's missing anything. Now we're doing this. To your point about one golf, you've got to try some things. And it's a bit like the, the camel, you know, horse designed by committee. When you've got committees with competing interests, they're, they're trying to get to an outcome to make something happen and to move down a path. And sometimes they're going to get it wrong. Yeah, they probably got that one wrong. But at least they tried and it showed, okay, we've learned some mistakes from that. If they can take those mistakes and go, okay, now how do we take the next step and how do we do this? The next step may not get it right either. But even the fact that they've put on the public record that they're looking at it, I think, is a really good sign. Um, And, you know, I hope that happens. My relationship with Golf Australia, um, particularly when Stephen Pitt was there, he came in uh, sort of during my tenure. We had a great relationship with Stephen. I think he did a really good job. Um, I don't think people thought when he came in that he was going to have the longevity and everything that he did, but ended up being, you know, a great administrator, I think, from my perspective. Fabulous people. Agreed. In and out of it. Absolutely. Fabulous Um, people person. the, the, The guy that preceded him, um, in the role, um, I had a stand-up blue with at Height Coolum one day. Um, you know, I've uh, I, I can get a bit toey, but I don't generally go no, and walk up one. to someone and abuse <laughs> them. Um, and, and I actually 
remember what it was about. I'm not I'm going to repeat it publicly, but I also remember walking go. into the Let media centre afterwards <laughs> and um, and uh, some of the journos applauding me because yeah. yeah. they'd witnessed it or heard it and um, and thought that I was right, which was nice. Um, I also went and offered my resignation to my <laughs> boss at the time, uh, which he thankfully didn't accept at that point. But um, yeah, I mean, not the most professional uh, highlight of my career, but um, but but it did demonstrate that there were some deep seated, uh, and he, he'd been relatively new in that role and didn't stay there very long. There were some very deep seated. Um, uh, chasms that just couldn't be overcome, and that someone would always default to form, and and yeah, he wore my wrath. There was a there was a generational shift that happened around that time, wasn't yes. it? Which was kind of important. Yeah, and needed to happen. Last thing, because I know you've got a meeting to get to, and we can't keep you for too much longer. It's re- reared its head again this week. Would you be one that supports the idea of the USPGA, which is not actually called the PGA Championship we're watching now, moving around the world every few years and being played elsewhere? I'd put the case that it should. Not based on anything, and I know the argument is it's the US PGA. I actually think that the the global PGA brethren yeah. would all benefit from clearly the biggest dog in the house, the United States PGA, taking its championship and sharing it, not every year, with its fellow PGA professor. If, for example, you were still the PGA marketing communications person and Australia's turn came up to host the PGA, a major, what could the local PGA do with that for the good of the game here in Australia if that if that ever came to pass i think it's a great idea i i generally do uh, you know because if if you've got an opportunity to showcase the best players in the world um, in a tournament we've got plenty of good golf courses there's no shortage of that why wouldn't you take it why wouldn't that promote the game it would have to so um, I'd be very favourable to it. it it does beg the question okay if the US PGA Championship for argument's sake is in Australia what happens to the Australian PGA Championship you know uh, you know it, it Historically, you know, even do we not run it that year? Well, hang on, there's a year we don't run the championship. You know, you don't like seeing those things happen. But look, uh, those sort of nuances aside, you know, the big picture would be it would be good for golf to move it round um, and and do that sort of thing. And and you know, that's. <laughs> Partly why I also like the President's Cup, the fact that it did move around a little as a tournament of that sort of stature. And, you know, it was obviously done to take on the Ryder Cup and give the PGA Tour something like the PGA of America had. Um, what happens and- to that when Seth War gets his way and the two organisations merge? Do we lose the President's Cup? Well, let's not go down. Uh, but, my goodness. But, hmm. um, but yeah, I'd, you know, you imagine if the, the PGA Championship was here and it happened to be the US PGA Championship and it was being played at the Australian and all the top players in the world there, would you go and watch? Of course you would. Um, it, it'd be great. It'd you be would, great for the game. You wouldn't say it about any of the other majors, but the PGA has got, whether they like to admit it or not, Whilst it has the best field and has an awful lot to recommend it as a tournament, it has an image problem as being the fourth most important major. Yeah. And defensively, of course, they've announced the next 10 years of venues. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, yeah. you, they've got to back like out Clay's of that. Idea. Olympic years, yeah. taken international, there's some, there's some merit in that. Yeah. It would just give it a point of difference. Yeah. It is just this PGA Tour yeah. event on steroids at the moment. That's it. Whether right or wrong, that yeah. is. They need to change it. Yeah, but it just needs to be something. Yeah, to to spark. And making it, up. it international would do some wonderful things for the game and for the tournament yeah. itself. As it is, they take it to some terrible venues. So <laughs> <laughs> it certainly couldn't get any worse yeah. than some of the places yeah. they take it. Uh, sorry, quick, if you've got anything, Adrian, you better ask it because I'm about to let JD go. And you no, no, he's, he's got a hard out, as they say. So I've already booked a meeting yeah. very sensibly. Yeah. It's been fabulous of you to come in, mate. I know Not that you're going to go. So I've really enjoyed it. We'd like to get you back.
back sometime. Oh, I'd love to. Um, yeah, like I said, still heavily engaged in the game and, and love watching it and, you know, following it and listening to you guys and following you on Twitter probably more so than anything else. But um, there, there's some healthy banter and um, and even, even Mike Clayton and some of his views, and I know he's not shy at putting them out there and some no, old, old clips no, of his not. old VHS tapes yeah. occasionally seem to pop up as well, which is, <laughs> yep. which is always great to see. I love seeing those things. Well, and, this uh, is the sort of stuff we talk about. We talk a lot less about what's going on on the golf. What is going Excellent. on on the golf course, by the way? Adrian, update? Uh, I'm leader. death riding DeChambeau, so I'm not sure how he's going. But um, uh, All you have to do was back Ca- him and that would Cameron have worked, Cameron Champ and DJ. <laughs> oh, Jason Day's making a bit of a run. He's only one off the lead now. Come on, Jason. Oh, good. Got nine holes to go. Do it for JJ Day. Cool. Fabulous, JD. Appreciate your help with that, mate. Thank you very much, and we'll, uh, we will get you back on time. But uh, John Dunlop, former... I can't remember your title. It was so long. General Manager, Commercial and Marketing. General Manager, Commercial. What do they call that these days? Comms, I think. Uh, where are you now? Uh, I've got my own business now. Yeah, so I've got my own business okay, now. So a um, company called Front Row. So we're an event management business. We run sportsmen's lunches, wow. um, conferences. Going great at the moment during oh. COVID, of course. <laughs> Not. Uh, but we also do a bit of sponsorship management. So um, I've got a young surfer model that I represent. I've got a couple of Paralympic. Well, name them. You've got a chance. Oh, he made it so, to platform. Okay, jo- Josie Prendergast. So Instagram, follow Facebook, Instagram, where yeah, follow, You'll find Josie on Instagram and you'll all thank me for it later. She's just a gorgeous girl. Um, and we do all her sponsorship management. And then I've got um, two Paralympians that we, we represent, uh, Riley Batt, who's captain of the wheelchair rugby team and also captain of the entire Australian Paralympic team. Wouldn't be arguing. He's, yeah, he's <laughs> a fantastic young guy. Um, and we only started working with him sort of towards the end of last year. And just on that, on 26th of August, Netflix are releasing a new movie called Ra- um, Rising Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the eight oh, athletes wow. featured in that on the history of the Paralympics. And it's, it's I've seen it and it is fantastic. What's R- that? Really watch it. What's that sponsorship space looking like? They, we talk about women in golf and we're making some headway disabled athletics has really made some headway in the yeah. last decade and a half i think it's it's come from like uh, sorry my second paralympic athlete is a guy called curtis mcgrath i've been working with him for about four or five years now um and even in that time i've been working with him i've just noticed a shift in the commercial world it used to be that the diversity for the for the to coin the term was a tick box things for corporates yeah. And in the time I've been working with these guys, I've just seen that it's not that anymore. The, the corporate Australia is really tuned in to go, hang on, there's some great stories, there's great athletes, there's, there's value, great messages, and value. there's real value. It's not the same as um, able-bodied athletes yet, but it's certainly pushing into that territory, um, and, and that's encouraging it, to see. I know it be the same. Should it be the same? They've got different stories to tell, don't they? Yeah, I mean, of course it should be They the same. come over different sort yeah. of commercial imperative and value for a corporate is, you know, recognition factor. You know, if, if I do something with Susie O'Neill or, um, you know, Duncan Armstrong, there's a recognition factor, everyone in Australia, whereas even though these guys are as worthy, they're just not as well known. So once you, once we get over that hurdle, once we, and, and I, Every Paralympics we go through, every Paralympic cycle, we see that happening more and more. So um, the the companies we've been dealing with for those guys for the last few years are just really sort of tuned into yeah. doing it and and paying the right sort of numbers and everything. So that's great. And the the final sort of client whose sponsorship I manage at the moment is the Wiggles. Is that right? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So <laughs> anyone out there with kids is going to be sending in emails now. Exactly. To get in touch with you. Well, they'll just want to meet Emma. Everyone wants to meet Emma. Um, so they're fantastic people to work yeah. really hard. Didn't Frank Williams manage the original Williams? Norman's former manager? I'm sure go. he did. Well, there's right something at the very big check. Yeah. Check so on. they're they're 30 years old next year. The the group. The so. field. Paul Field still involved with her. Uh, no, Paul left the business earlier this year, but Anthony's oh, okay. still Anthony. Blue Wiggle. Oh, okay. Um. 
and and you know some of their family are still work through the business. You know the the field name is synonymous with the group. Um, but uh, yeah, so really really exciting times. And and yeah, so we manage their sponsorship portfolio and find new sponsors and look after their existing ones. And yeah, fa- fantastic. And um, and it's actually been really nice this year. <laughs> to really invest in that and really spend a lot of time getting to know them and do all that because they haven't been touring. So 2019, they did 345 shows for 454,000 people. You know, Working for they, your money, aren't you? They tour relentlessly. They're, they're amazingly hard workers and, so and decent people. No personal life. Mm. Uh, worse than golf, no personal life. Can't have a dog. <laughs> you don't see your own house for the bulk of the year. That, yep. That's a hell of a way to live. And yeah. a smile yeah. just transfixed to your yeah. face. Yeah, that's right. Well. Like, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of- I get sore cheekbones for yeah. smiling. Well, there's a lot of financial re- reward for it, but my goodness, it doesn't make up for everything, that's for sure. No. But- You've wandered into one of my other favourite uh, topics, which is media. We don't want to get started on that. We better let you go. Thanks for thanks. coming in, mate. We'll thanks so much. Where can any, people any find time. you on Twitter before you go? And uh, your business and your company? Just at John Dunlop. John that's Dunlop. it. I can't oh, believe that actually, wasn't no, taken. It can't be. No, it's not. That's uh, that's the Instagram one. There you go. Um, I can't remember. Oh, I know what it is. It's JD Sports MGMT Sports <laughs> of Management. It, of course it is. what it is. JD Sports oh, Management. Yeah. yeah. But the funny thing on that is JD Sports, which is the retailer, every time – someone in the UK or Australia has a complaint about customer service to JD Sports, I somehow you, you get tagged it. in the Twitter complaint. Um, I wrote back to one the other day and said, it. oh, look, how about we send you a $1,000 gift voucher yeah, to make up for it? Exactly. And JD Sports actually replied with, ha, ha, that's very funny, thanks. <laughs> anyway. Even though it really wasn't. Yeah. We might as well wrap it up there, actually, because uh, not much else for us to go on with. Thanks for tuning in. That's it. No uh, thank you, Lloyd. Great to have you on board as well. Thanks, Rob. That was episode 44, episode 45 next week. You know how it works. Come back to the same place and we'll do it all again here on The Good Good golf podcast.